Thank you all for tuning in to Daniel Young's New Testament studies. What a day it has been, and I'm excited to be hopping in to the Word with you guys. And whoever's tuning in, thank you first and foremost for tuning in, and I hope that these studies have been doing great things for you. Um, I get excited about this ministry. I get excited about sharing the Word with you guys, and and um, even though there are some of you who are listening who I don't know you, I'm excited that you're tuning in, and I would love to know you someday. But until that happens, we're going to keep studying and just keep tuning in and learning. So, John chapter 5 and chapter 6 today, but a brief recap of what John chapter 4 had to offer, which was Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman about uh, how essentially he is the living water that we desire. He is the... He is the longing for our spiritual thirst that cannot be fulfilled by anything else on this earth. And, uh, you know, he's given her this analogy of those who drink this water will never thirst. And she's like, well, I well, I need to find this physical water because, you know, I'm just kind of tired of coming to this well. And if I drink it once, I'll never have to drink it again. I'll be permanently hydrated. And Jesus is like, lady, I mean, seriously, it's gone completely over your head at this point. God bless you. I'm the water. It's spiritual water. It's not physical water. It's about me. I created everything. Like, it's it's about me. It sounds selfish, but it's really not because when our lives are focused around Jesus, then it begins to all make sense. And that's where we find our ultimate joy and satis- um, satisfaction in. But, you know, this course goes over the lady's head. Eventually, later on, she, she begins to realize as this woman... She was kind of a promiscuous woman, but Jesus still, you know, reaches out to her. And the fact that it reaches out to a promiscuous woman just is, paints an even clearer picture of the gospel. That no matter where you've, where you've been, where you've done, Jesus is for you. He's not against you. He loves you. And, and if he's drawn you near to himself, man, I, dive in. Don't fight it. Dive in, I'm telling you. So, uh, the end of John chapter 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan the Jew, the Samaritan and the Jew, it almost sounds like I call it a Samaritan Jew, um, the Samaritan and the Jew, that they will no longer be worshiping in separate places because Jesus, you know, obviously Jesus being the Messiah, he's going to pay the price and they're going to be able to worship God anywhere and everywhere because Jesus is their full atonement. And that's just a remarkable thing. Imagine being a Samaritan Hearing that back then, that was probably just mind-blowing. I mean, being face-to-face with the Messiah, the one you've been waiting forever to come. Now he's finally here. And we continue on to John chapter 5 through chapter 6 today. So, (coughs) the healing at the pool. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So this, uh, in John chapter 5, right off the bat, we're introduced to this pool where a lot of people with, with uh, paralyzation, blind, the lame, essentially people with a lot of disabilities hang out. And it paints this interesting picture where you think about it, and you're like, why... Do these people hang out at this pool? But the thing is, the reason 
that they hung out at this pool is because it there was this idea back um back in ancient Jerusalem that this pool would start circulating on its own almost like you ever made a whirlpool i remember living uh when i grew up in california we had a jacuzzi in the backyard and i remember having a couple friends or me and my sister and some family members we would walk around inside of the jacuzzi skipping you know, walking around the boundaries of it, and it would create almost this whirlpool effect. We never got it going super fast, but I imagine if we kept trying, you know, and got enough people, you can get that thing moving really fast, but I remember getting it fast enough to where it would pull. If I stopped moving and I just tried to sit in the water, it would, it would pull me, and I'm a, I was a big, I was a big, big boy, so, you know, that's, that's really saying something. I mean, I weighed 120 pounds, I'm pretty sure, by the time I was in fourth or fifth grade. So, I mean, it's just remarkable what um, how strong that whirlpool actually was. But the reason I talk about this is they would wait for this water to start bubbling up and to start churning up. And it was believed that the first person to hop in the water would be cured of all of their, um, all of their disabilities, so the water would start churning and bubbling and someone would see it and go, oh, snap, and jump right into the water and they'd come out and they would be free of their disability. So kicking off in verse 5, one who was there had been an in, has been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, sir, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool and the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. Essentially, this guy's got, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm imagining he's got a pretty gnarly leg injury. Due from what the scripture says, that he's lying there. And he had been lying there in this condition for a long time. So he's been, um, how long did he say? What did he say just now? 38 years, verse 5, 38 years he's been, he's been invalid. You can imagine that he had just been sitting there day after day in this pool, waiting for it to start turning up, and maybe he thinks that each time, oh, it's my chance, it's my chance, but then someone else, maybe who's only got a hand injury, goes, oh man, I'm jumping in there, I'm getting healed right now, and he did, and he constantly just kept getting beat, uh, get beat to the chase, he can't catch a break, he can't hop in the pool fast enough before someone comes and steals his opportunity. So Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And he replies to him in verse seven, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. Verse eight. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once this man was cured. He picked up his mat and he began to walk. What I want to point out here in verse eight, is this man has been invalid for 38 years. You can imagine um, you do not have a high morale at that point of getting healed, especially when someone has been taking your spot, beating you to the chase of jumping into that pool. Yet Jesus commands him, almost an impossible command, in fact, it is a completely impossible command, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Could you imagine the guy was probably like, are you serious right now? But the thing is, is that, What we can get from verse 8 is that when Jesus gives us a quote-unquote impossible command, that the command itself is not impossible. 
if he asks us to do it. And we just got to get up and we got to do it. It says, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. When Jesus asks us to do something, whether it's to go and to minister or to go and start serving in this area or you know whatever you want to put there that you know makes sense with following the lord he says get up pick up your mat and walk or whatever command he's telling you to do maybe it's hey start a podcast hey lead a bible study hey do this do that and you're like lord it's impossible it's not impossible whatever he asks of you he's not relying on you to make it happen if he's telling you to do something the best thing to do is to just go ahead and do it. So continuing in verse 9. <clears throat> At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which he took his place was a Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Let's see here. Jeez. <clears throat> Verse 13. The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man who went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. A couple of things that... um that are interesting about here is the Pharisees, the modern day quote unquote Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. The Pharisees sought to interpret the Sabbath law. Um, and their interpretation is called the Mishnah. So they essentially took the 10 commandments and turned them into like three, I believe it's, it's kind of a, kind of a vast difference, but it's either 300 or 600 more required requirements that, that they enabled and put on top of the regular Ten Commandments, the regular Sabbath laws, than, or the regular you know ways in which to follow the Sabbath than were completely necessary, um, which is just, you know, it kind of put a huge burden on the people, which was, you know, kind of counterproductive, but I guess, you know, people are people and they do things that just don't make sense a lot of the times. What can make you alarmed when you read this is, let's see, where was it? Is in verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. You're like, what? It's the thing, the reason things happen to me in this life is because of my sin. It's so the reason that you know my 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 aunt has terminal cancer or whatever the case is is because of her sin. Is it because of my sin? Did I enable something to happen to her? Is my life falling apart just because of my sin? Do I have a debilitating disease because of what I've done? And the answer to that is. For the most part, that is not the case. To say to someone, to go up to him and and someone who's struggling and you just go, well, you just don't have enough faith. Oh, why are you, uh, you're struggling with this sin? Oh, yeah, it's because you don't have enough faith. 
oh, you have a, you just got a bad doctor diagnosis. You don't have enough faith. That's why you got it. It's completely and absolutely counterproductive and the least bit encouraging. And it's not going to help you. It's not going to help them realize who Jesus is. It's going to make them feel even worse. There's a time and a place for conviction. And the Holy Spirit does that. But the thing is, is that if we just can go around and say that the reason that you have a debilitating disease or anything like that is strictly because of your sin or your parents' sin, um, that's not the case. I believe that that is a very, very, very rare time when that that happens, when when someone is debilitated or you know has something like that in regards to their sin. I believe that that is a very, very rare instance. <clears throat> Let's see here. The authority of the Son. Verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. <clears throat> What's interesting here is Jesus is violating, it says, you know, early on that... Um, you know, Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath and the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. That's in verse 16, is that Jesus is violating the Pharisees' work. And, you know, just as the scripture says, the Pharisees were not a fan. The, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible. When you read the scripture, you see the Pharisees almost beginning to put Jesus into a box. Begin not Not even just, you know, like the idea of who the Messiah is, but just or the identity, I should say, of who they believe the Messiah was going to be, but also just the way in which God worked. As they began to put God in a box, and it was completely frustrating to them seeing you know, God in the flesh doing things in a completely different way than what they expected or what they would rather you know, have him going about doing the tasks at hand. And that's just an incredible thing that you can't place God in a box of what he can and cannot do or how he can and cannot do what he is that he seeks to accomplish on this planet and through his people. So verse 19, this is a huge, huge thing we need to grasp here is Jesus gives him this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because this is where, this is where we need to grasp whatever the father does the son also does. So right here in verse 19, you know, it's easy to read this and give a translation that, oh, is Jesus saying that he's inferior to the father? Because he says the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. But the reality is to grasp what Jesus is trying to understand here, you obviously need to con continue reading into because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus is not calling himself inferior here. In fact, Jesus is declaring that he and the Father are in perfect harmony and equality with one another. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. 
Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. It's just really cool to see that, you know, the father and the son are are almost like bonding. They they're completely equal. They are completely united. Um and it's almost like a a family uh, a bonding thing here that we get to see between the father and the son as they just begin to, you know, show their their complete and total equality and harmony with one another for our benefit, you know, and for their glory most importantly. So, uh verse 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them to life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Verse 22, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father, the Father, the Father who sent Him. So, you know, the, I, I believe this is kind of a, a side thought that just shows up in verse 23. That all that may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I believe that this is a way, a very easy and simple way that you could see um, someone who really, maybe, you know, a religion, I guess, is the way to go about it. To see if they are sketchy, I guess, is the word that I want to use, or not, is to see if they honor the sun or not. Typically, well, no, all the time, Jehovah's Witnesses typically, they believe that... Jesus is inferior to the Father, that the Father was around before Christ was, and that He created Christ. That they are, so at that point, they're not um, completely living in equality and um, in harmony. At that point, the Father is more powerful and makes Jesus inferior to the Father, that idea does, which is just completely not the case, because if you think about it, how much greater is the sacrifice of Christianity than it is of the Jehovah's Witnesses to where we believe that God came down and He gave His life for us. 100% God, 100% man. A complete and total perfect atonement. Yet the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that God essentially created an inferior being, inferior to Him, to come down and to give a sacrifice. I don't know about you, but I believe that God gives his all, so why would he give me something that is completely inferior to who he is for a sacrifice on my behalf? If we believe on how much God loves us, then we should have no problem believing that he wouldn't give us some inferior you know, being that he created, but that he would give us, in fact, himself, which I think is just the strongest thing against you know, the JWs. I mean... I love them. They're very nice people. I just, uh, you know, I like to ask them these questions, and I and I pray that they, that they come and and they see that Jesus isn't, you know, inferior to the Father, but that you know, three in one, you know, the base, the the basic, core belief of Christianity, the three in one, the Trinity. You know how it is. But besides the point, don't want to get distracted. So, um, very truly, I tell you. Uh, starting in verse 24, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossover from death to life. Very truly I tell you, 
A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. <clears throat> i got to take time to clear my throat. Still getting over that cold, so bear with me. <clears throat> For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son um, also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will be rise or will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. I want to go back to verse 28 for a second. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. Jesus right here, I believe, is talking about after his crucifixion, when he's in the tomb for three days, when he goes down and rescues those, um, rescues those from Hades. And what I mean by that is, typically, in New Testament and Old Testament, you have two references to hell. You have Gehenna, and you have Sheol. And if I'm correct here with my memory, Gehenna is the place of absolute separation and darkness from God. And Sheol is almost an in-between um, an in-between area to where it's not viewed as hell, but it's almost viewed as a waiting room. So I believe that's where I believe that's where Christ went during his three days to go and to rescue those people from the quote unquote waiting room. And um, I believe that's what he's talking about in verse uh, 28. And uh, in verse 30, also, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus is once again showing here that him and the Father are in complete harmony with their decision and with their equality, which is just such a cool thing. All right, verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor. I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mentioned that you may be saved. But I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Stop there, right before verse 36. Um, I want to point out in verse 31 here. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is saying that if he had just came and testified of himself, the people wouldn't believe or receive him. Once again, this goes back all the way to, um, all the way. It was like a, uh, what was like a couple verses beforehand that if Jesus only came and testified to his um uh, not as human to his to his miracles and all that just for the sake of the miracles in themselves um that people would not receive him because the reality is is that we all have this spiritual thirst right and it can't be it can't be quenched by anything worldly quote unquote christian term worldly or anything besides christ so the whole reason of jesus coming down to testify was not only to testify himself, um, 
Um, but it was also to show that Jesus wanted others to testify about who he is. That's why he goes on in verse 31 um, to say that there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have you have sent to John, and he has testified the truth. Then he starts talking about John the Baptist. So, Jesus' own words, it's pretty interesting here that Jesus is saying his own testimony about himself wouldn't be enough. But other people need to talk about it. Other people need to, to tell people the truth about Jesus in order so that he will be received. And that's just a great opportunity that the Lord gives us to talk about who he is and to talk about what, he, um, what he's going to accomplish to let us be a, to let us be about his business, his plan, you know. Uh, he just wants us involved, and I think that's just a remarkable thing. <clears throat> Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John. So now he's going even further on who testifies on his behalf. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Verse 37, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament prophecies proposed by the Father, obviously. He said, you have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he sent. So Jesus is telling us something, is that if we really understood what the Old Testament had to offer and who the whole testament the whole testament the whole old testament was about from beginning to end then we would not have a problem in accepting the complete and total deity and messiahship of who Christ is verse 39 you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life these are the very scriptures that testify about me yet you refuse to come to me to have life what a hard statement verse 41 i do not accept glory from human beings but i know you i know that you do not have the love of god in your hearts i have come in my father's name and you do not accept me but if someone else comes in his own name you will you will accept him how can you believe since you have accepted glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only god clearing my throat so i believe that in verse 43 I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. I, I, I believe that the Lord here is talking about the Antichrist, because it's believed, you know, it's prophesied that when the Antichrist comes, everyone's going to fall for his ploy. Well, not the people who are not grounded in who Christ is are going to fall for his ploy. He's going to rebuild the temple. He's going to do all these miraculous signs and people are going to love him and want so much to do with him. And he's going to come and here's the main point. He's not going to be testifying to who God is, but he's going to be testifying only about himself and he's only going to be coming in his own name. And the sad part is in that second part of the verses and you will accept him. Uh, It's a pretty scary reality. It's a pretty sad thing, but... Thanks be to God for his grace and his constant refreshment in those terrifying, terrifying thoughts, you know. Verse 45, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. 
If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Man, I, I, in verse 45, But do not think what I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. The reason that I believe that Jesus says that, our, that the accuser is Moses is, one, the whole law, all Ten Commandments, all the Mosaic Law, points to one person. It points to Jesus, obviously. And the reality is, is that the reason that it would accuse you if you just look to Moses, <clears throat> if your hopes are only set on what Moses said, is because the Ten Commandments were proposed not for us to be righteous, but were shown to us by the Lord to show just how far short we fall of the marker. It was to show us that without a permanent atonement, we are completely doomed. So if our hope was in that and not in Christ, then that's just, that's bad news. But the reality is, is that if we believed Moses, that is, if we saw what the whole law was about, if we realized that it didn't bring us righteousness, it condemned us, it needed to condemn us so that we could be you know, humbled enough and lowly enough to realize that we need Christ. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. It was all about him. But since you do not believe in what he wrote, how are you going to believe what it is I have to say? So now we move into John chapter 6. <clears throat> this is a fun chapter. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. <clears throat> Oof. So the Passover, the Passover time in Galilee... Um, was occurring in the spring. It's typically around the springtime when this would uh, when this would occur. So, um, when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, "Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat?" I think it's interesting that Jesus asks these questions like he doesn't know the answer. I believe he does it in the same way as a teacher asks you what. 2 plus 2 is. You think the teacher doesn't know what 2 plus 2 is? No, the teacher obviously knows what 2 plus 2 is. But it's an enabling factor that the teacher asks the student so that the student can learn. Um, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. There you go. <laughs> Philip, uh, Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Verse 8. Another one of his disciples... Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with small, with, small, uh, with small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. That's not even counting the women and children. <clears throat> Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. What's interesting here is there's a there's people who try to discredit this um, miracle by trying to explain it in a logical and rational way. 
which is quite foolish because Jesus didn't do it so it could be explained in a rational and logical way. <clears throat> Some people would try to come up with a um, with the story of how the boy with the small five barley loaves and two small fish that the whole crowd saw this boy give give up his food so that the disciple uh, to the disciples and they were all so moved by what it is that the boy had done that they all had already secretly brought food <clears throat> in their garments and they all started to feel you know, something in their heart, and they all took out their food and began to share with one another. Thus, the 5,000 were fed. And that is completely stupid, and I don't know why someone would even come up with that. The reality is, if you have trouble with this miracle, it's not because... It's not because <clears throat> of its illogical um, fallacy or whatever you think the case is. It's because... That you have put a limitation upon God. See, we wouldn't have trouble with these miracles if we realized how powerful God is. That's the reality. The reason that we have trouble with uh, Jonah being swallowed by a fish, that some have trouble with that, is because we begin to limit God. We make God smaller than he ought to be. And even in that, the Lord still works. But he did this, guys. And and this is the reality of it. Verse 12. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the twelve baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again by mountain to himself. That's just... You know, typical Jesus, just in and out. It's kind of like Batman. Makes a grand entrance. And then... (laughs) Makes a grand entrance. And then he just kind of backs up and sneaks out before anyone um, can can do anything about it. Oh, where's G... Oh, he's gone. Oh, man, that was so cool. I I hope I get to see him again. (laughs) Uh, Jesus walks on water. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat, and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. Verse 18, a strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum, in search of Jesus. Man, they got one taste of Jesus and they couldn't not they could not get enough. They when you get one taste of Jesus, man, you just want more. You want more of what he has to offer. You want more of what he's doing in your life. And what's cool is like this whole theme of Jesus retreating. All the way back 
to verse 15, it shows it, and all the way, you know, even farther on as we'll dive deeper into the later chapters of John. But this whole idea that Jesus know that they intended to come and to make him king by force withdrew again to a mountainside by himself. Jesus knew when he was supposed to achieve what it was to achieve, when he was supposed to be crucified, when he was supposed to be lifted up to the Father. And it's just so interesting how they come, you know, all the way back in verse 15, that they come to make him king by force, but it wasn't his time, so he retreats. Jesus has a perfect time from which a perfect time frame for the things that need to be accomplished, the things that he's going to accomplish. And, you know, it's just cool that there's like this retreating aspect to the way that Jesus is um, operating about the whole thing in regards to, um, to retreating with the disciples, retreating away when people would try to reveal who he was before it was necessary and ready to do so. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Verse 26, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, um, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you for on him. God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So right there in verse 26, <clears throat> we see that God is essentially saying that he will not honor those who seek him for the wrong reasons. Oftentimes we seek God just for the sake of a miracle. We seek God just for the sake of so he can do something in our lives, so he can make us feel good. But the reality is, is that the right reason to seek Christ is when we realize that he is Lord over all, that he is king and that he has paid the debt and he <clears throat> deserves to be praised forever and ever and ever. And that's the reason to come to the Lord. And what's cool is that even when we fall short in the ways we come to the Lord, he still supplies grace for that. And still, like even in that wrongness of coming towards him, still he works it out for you're good. <clears throat> so, um, verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do um, to do the works God requires? In verse 29, <clears throat> Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Boom. That is literally the straightforward answer that Jesus gives. What work can you do to praise God? What work can you do to serve? What work can you do to praise God? Simply this. Believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, <clears throat> Sir, they said, always gives us the bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. <clears throat> and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, 
You have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. So verse 30 through 33, Jesus essentially straight shoots it. I mean, the people had just eaten before, you know, the whole feeding the 5,000, yet they asked Jesus about food again. And Jesus tells them that the only way that they will never hunger again is through him. Once again, Jesus is not talking about the physical hunger. He's talking about the, uh, he's not talking about the physical hunger. He's talking about the spiritual hunger. <clears throat> and then in verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. <clears throat> Whom the Father reveals grace to, they will not turn away. Nobody can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him near. <clears throat> and then we got to notice here as we finish up these claims. For my, father, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at that day. What's interesting here, everyone who looks to the Son, this does not say that everyone on this earth... This does not say that everyone who believes in some sort of God, this says specifically it's a specific invitation for one kind of person, and that is for those who look to the Son and believe in Him. Some people have struggles with Christianity saying, ah, man, I just can't get down with this. It's too narrow. Oh, you're too narrow in your beliefs. Count that as a good thing. The path is narrow and few find it. We can't sit in here, you know, sit here. Jesus declares <clears throat> that he is the only way. He is the only, the only truth, the only way to salvation, the only way to God. Narrow is the path and few find it. So if your path is narrow, you're doing good. Keep the path narrow because it's narrow and few find it. <clears throat> At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? <clears throat> Man, this throat is tearing <clears throat> me up. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. Now I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. One thing I want to point out, I almost forgot, in verse 41, we have this this aspect <clears throat> of of bread in John chapter 6. There's a lot of bread going around. And um one thing I forgot to point out is all the way back when Jesus is feeding the 5000, when it says that the people were filled after they ate, it literally translates to glutted which is talking about how it they're absolutely stuffed, cannot eat anymore, filled to the maximum potential with this bread. And I believe that, you know, in regards to this bread, you know, that's just such a relevant thing here in John chapter 6. <clears throat> Man, my throat is ripping me right now. Um, that Jesus doesn't just come to give us a little <clears throat> a little piece of himself. 
Jesus is referring himself to the manna, <coughs> to the bread that came down from heaven. It satisfied, it filled, <clears throat> it filled the Hebrews. It filled them until the next day. Jesus strives to fill us, to glut us until the next day. You know, we pray for daily bread. We don't pray for bread for tomorrow. We pray for it today. We worry about tomorrow when tomorrow comes. We pray for tomorrow when tomorrow comes. And it's just such a cool aspect that the Lord puts in here. <clears throat> Verse 43, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give you from the life of the world. Which I give you for the life of the world. <clears throat> Man! <clears throat> then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Gosh dang it. <laughs> the physical viewpoint from the spiritual. A clear indicator of what's happening here. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so no, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This whole idea of that bread... It's to give us a precursor of what was to come, that God would supply a bread that would hold us, that would hold those those Hebrew people over for their you know for their forty year journey through the desert. But now it has come. It has come. The time has come where Jesus is the complete fulfillment of that bread, and He's going to give us bread eternal. He is the bread eternal. Eternal life is what He offers. He's not just giving it to us. Um, to help us survive for the day, he give us he gives us his bread that li- allows us to live forever and ever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Many disciples desert Jesus. <clears throat> I want to point out that notice all of the claims that Jesus made, bread of life, you know, and saying that. You know, he's the only way of eternal life. It's just such a cool comparison. Just so cool how the Old Testament and the New Testament combine uh, combine and just, you know, just go off of each other. It really is just remarkable. And the more you look, you read stuff like that, and then you look back and look back into Exodus and all that stuff, and you're like, holy cow, it really does all just correlate perfectly. That's the beauty of the Lord. Many disciples desert Jesus. On hearing it, many of the disciples have said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Where that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? 
Then what if uh, what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not yet believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. <clears throat> Verse 64. Jesus knows from the beginning. Um, that's just so cool. That just shows the complete and total sovereignty of God. That he knows who's going to come to him and who's not going to. Who's going to believe and who's not going to. <clears throat> Many couldn't handle what Jesus was saying. It declares this in... um. Verse 66, for this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. <clears throat> because of Jesus declaring that it's the spiritual that matters, not the physical. That's hard to grasp any day of the week. Sometimes it hurts when we remember that um, the physical isn't the most important thing here. In fact, it's all about following the Lord that's the most important thing. <clears throat> and and doing what he says and and focusing on what he says matters and what matters what does he say matters himself he's what matters living by what he says is what matters you know everything fades away but he doesn't <clears throat> verse 67 you do not want to leave too do you jesus asked the 12 simon peter answered him lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life that's what matters, is the words that Jesus has and Jesus himself. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who thought of the twelve, was later to betray him. <clears throat> so that concludes for John chapter 6 and chapter 5. One thing that you can look back to and the beginning of John chapter 6, feeding the 5,000, which is completely my bad, um, is I forgot to go over this reference, but I would love for you to check it out for yourselves if I hop all the way back there real quick, is after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. <clears throat> this, is the referring, this is referring to the prophecy that Moses proclaimed about the one to come. Because this whole idea, this whole chapter, <clears throat> um, this whole chapter is, you know, referencing bread and the manna and, you know, Moses testifying on who Jesus is. And that's the kind of the big theme of John chapter six is the bread and <clears throat> the bread from heaven and how it was temporary bread. But now we've come and we have the eternal bread, which is Christ. But anyway. That um, concludes John chapter 5 and chapter 6. This was a long episode. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, uh, stay tuned for next week as we go in through John chapter 7, which is a pretty long chapter, and we'll probably just do one chapter next week. All right, have a fantastic weekend. May God be with you.